Um, welcome, everyone. We are in Matthew chapter 8. And uh, so go ahead and turn there if you have your Bibles with you. And we're going to be uh, starting in verse 18 as we continue our, our study, the book of Matthew. Uh, before we do, though, uh, do so, though, although, um, want to remind you, actually, one month from today is um, what many of us have grown up knowing as Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, the day that Christ uh, rose from the grave. And we always celebrate that Sunday in a unique way at Austin New Church. For those of you who are new, I'll tell you kind of what we do. And it's kind of a throwback to what we have always, um, how, kind of we, how we started as a, as a faith community, as a church. Um, for those of you who kind of know our story, um, we, we did start out, trying to start a church, but not really, if that makes sense. Like we were trying to just figure out if we studied the Bible and, and looked at what Christ said, our lives were supposed to look like and what we were supposed to value. And if we were to really take scripture and allow it to define the way we do church, what would it look, what would it look like? And as we began that, we began by just studying God's word um, one week and then go serving the next week as we were in small groups and those groups multiplied and we eventually began a gathering and tried different rhythms and things like that on how we would serve. But one of the first things we ever did as a community was go down to 7th and Neches downtown and just grab some hamburgers, patties and some different supplies. And if, if you know Austin at all, it's a real hub for the homeless community uh, in downtown Austin right there. And we just cooked burgers and handed them out and hung out. And it was amazing how... Um, I mean, you know, for a bunch of people who honestly had never done much of that kind of thing in our lives, it was pretty, pretty transforming just to be in a different environment and to give yourself a different kind of permission to do church in a different way on that day. There's just something that God does in those experiences that we found over the years that Jesus knows what he's doing. And, uh, there's a reason why he calls us to do certain things, but that was kind of the beginning of our church. And so I remember there was a day when we were thinking about Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday was coming up. And usually Easter Sunday is the Sunday in which um, you have a million people come to church, right? And we're pretty convinced as pastors, we're pretty convinced that that's the day like everyone that doesn't go to church actually goes to church. And I'm pretty convinced it's really, it's just that everybody goes to church that day. Like on most days, it's like two out of, you go to maybe one out of every two Sundays, you know, so you can't miss that. So, so huge attendance. And we were thinking, what are we going to do? Do we need to add services? Do we need to do all that? And we ended up deciding on that, that week, we were just going to not do our gathering like this. And we were going to go downtown. We were going to grill burgers, but we were also not only going to serve, but we were going to have a meal together. We were going to have a communion service in downtown Austin with the homeless community, uh, fellowship together. And it just became a very special special time for us. But it's interesting over the years as we've served, that we've served and we've learned. Like at the very beginning, it was like, oh, this is awesome. We're so awesome. We're doing so many amazing things. And if everybody was like us, Jesus would be so much more happier. Um, but this, this thing that happens, I've realized is a progression in, tr- in faith as you grow, is that something seems very pure and and it, it gets you out of your comfort zone and you sense the spirit moving and your mind begins to shift and your heart begins to shift and, and you start doing things and everything seems just awesome at the beginning and then you do it for a while and it's not that it becomes rote to you but, uh, but you begin to do it for a while and you begin to start seeing how sometimes you're not always doing the right things the right way. 
And so we've, over the years, have, have, have struggled with, well, how do we, how do, we do this well? Um, I remember uh, the first time I read the book, um, if I could remember the title of the book, it'd be helpful, um, When Helping Hurts. How many of y'all read Help When Helping Hurts? And essentially what it does is it goes into the mentality of seeking justice and serving in ways that sometimes end up creating, doing more damage than it does good. And it really calls out the American church because sometimes we like to serve as an event, as a thing, and we make it more about us than the person we're actually serving. And then we, sometimes we fail to ask the question, well, what, what actually helps this person the most? Or what is good news to this person? I think about that when it comes to different things like the orphan crisis in the world. You know, many times we think about, well, what is best for me instead of, no, well, what is best uh, for the orphan or what is best and dealing with, with these scenarios. And so I recall specifically related to the grill out, the fact that it creates a lot of tension for a lot of different people. Some people still just are like, this is just, I've never done anything like this. this is so, and I would encourage you to make this a priority to be a part of it. And then there are others that sit there and we sit in this tension because we look and we go, yeah, we're here, but still it's all the homeless community lined up and we're all sitting in the middle. And there's this obvious separation and we're struggling with this tension of how do we do this well? And I just want you to know that that's, I think that's part of it. That it's part of it, that tension, it's something that is going on. And so as we approach this time, it's a couple of things that we're learning, I think, that we need to be reminded of that is going to help uh, that Sunday be a great experience for everyone. The first one is I was encourage you is to do something, is to plan to serve. Plan to, to be involved. Plan to, instead of just coming and, I, I hate to use the word consuming, but that's what we do a lot with events and programs. We consume it. We don't want to, re- we want to experience that. We want to experience it, but we don't want to invest in it. Well, that makes it even more difficult to experience it right and for us to do things well. And so as we sign up and as we think about different ways that we can um, make this a, a good experience, be involved, plan to serve, plan to bring things, plan to have a task with you and, and your family. Um, if you have an idea of things that we could be doing during that time, let us know, especially during this specific Sunday each year, because we have so many of us instead of just 30 to 50 serving in that time. Um, uh, we're always looking for good ideas to make this, but but something that, um, that I really want, so first of all, is to plan to be involved, plan to serve, plan to do something. Don't just come and show up. Um, but another thing is, assume that God is already working in that place. And then assume that God is working in you in that place. That, that it's not just you or I that come into a place of serving in any capacity and think that we bring something that no one else could bring. But that, but that, we need to be there and we need to be in those environments because God is, God is, when we hear the questions and we experience the fear, we see the confusion or whatever, whatever is happening in that moment, capture that as God communicating to you. Because I think in those moments, sometimes God speaks very loudly or at least we're more in tune to what he's saying. So take that as an opportunity to really hear and to grow. The, one of the things we struggle with, uh, with the grill out is all of the, most of the things we try and do when we serve in our city and around the world, we're always looking for something that's preventative to get into root systemic issues sometimes um, and not just one hit things that were there and then we're gone. But I also want to release you to think sometimes it's okay just to bless people. Sometimes it's okay just to show up. We're not going to solve uh, homelessness on the streets of Austin. We're not going to solve poverty. We're not going to end uh, hunger. Uh, but for that moment, we are for those people 
who, who do share in, in what, what we're doing. And so let yourself off the hook a little bit and just come in, be ready, be present, be expecting God to move, but be willing to hear from him. Um, and I think you're going to have a great experience. But, so, but here's the question. This is just one example as we've sought to try and honor God in serving in all kinds of ways. Here's the question that just keeps come, we keep coming back to us. How do we know we're doing this right? How do we know when we're doing, fill in the blank, whatever it is we're doing. How do we know when we're doing it right? Especially when we're trying to help other people. Um, that's a question I continue to ask. And I think the most blunt and most simple answer I continue to come to is simply this. If whatever it is you're doing is extending dignity to another person, you're doing it right. Maybe it's temporary. Maybe it's just in that moment. But something about that, you're doing it right. And I think that's ultimately what Christ has done for us through the gospel. Extended dignity to us. That Now he calls us not just friends, but, I mean, we're, we're children of, of the creator of the universe. It's just an amazing thing, an extension of that dignity. And so whatever it is, wherever you are, maybe it's we need to just think about what our posture is with other people. And whether or not we're coming at them as if we're better than them or they, we have something for them. Or even in relationships, are we extending dignity? Are we um, talking down in our, in our voice? How do we feel truly about that person? Are we looking them in the eye? Are we shaking their hand? Are we willing to be present? Are we willing to show back up during that, that next week? Whatever it may be. The question is, how do we know if we're doing this right? And I think one of the answers is, if you're extending dignity, that means you're not stripping them of dignity. Um, whomever it may be at, at any moment, how do we know? How do we know we're doing this right? So as we've been looking at Matthew 8, Jesus has given us amazing instruction in the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, and, and there afterwards. Jesus, he, redef- he redefined what it meant to be a disciple, defined what it meant to be a disciple of this specific rabbi, of this teacher. And he said, and this is what it's going to look like. And, and we look at that thing today and some of us go, oh, that's awesome. We're doing it right. And then some of us are saying, this thing is broken. If we, if we hold it up to what Jesus said it was supposed to look like and what our priorities were to be and how we were to treat one another. Some in this very room would say, this is not working. This is broken. As people are jerks, other people are jerks. This doesn't feel like what Jesus was talking about. So here's the same question I ask. How do we know when we're doing this right? And when I say this, I mean this, this church thing, this religion thing, this faith thing, whether it's just on Sunday or throughout the week, how do we know if we're doing it right? And I think that Jesus, this is what Jesus is answering in Matthew 8. He's, he's saying, this is what it takes for this to work. And, and last week specifically, as Jen taught, he says, this is what it looks like. It's a really big table for the outcast for the outsider and for the insider. And we each have different things we're dealing with, right? To receive that. Some of us could receive the outsider way more than we will the insider and vice versa. But this is what it looks like is what he has 
been saying. So he taught on the mountainside, and the scripture says he came down the mountainside, and he cured the leper, the outcast. He cured the centurion's servant, the outsider, and he cured Peter's mother-in-law, the insider. So how do we know? Well, instead of seeing people through our assumptions, through our biases, in Christ, we begin to see others' brokenness, and we can empathize because of our brokenness. And something clicks where our hearts and our minds uh, begin to change. But too often we focus on where we're not instead of why we are not there and what it takes to get where we think we should be. And I think Jesus has been giving us a roadmap here that we're going to look into. And here's a couple conclusions about the how do we know if what we're doing is right or because he said, this is what it looks like. It's an incredibly open table. Through all of his stories, whether it's kneeling to the level of the woman caught in adultery or going right through Samaria instead of avoiding it, spending the time at high noon with the outcasts of the day at the, at the well, whether it was going to, you know, he sees, you know, the, uh, someone outcast by society and, and instead of calling him out, he says, hey, I'm coming over. We're having dinner at your house. A um, couple of thoughts I had this week as I was praying through this scripture. One is that we're not going to accidentally just stumble on this place. That it's not going to just happen to us. I think sometimes we keep thinking, we have this idea, oh, church should be like this. Or faith, we should look like this. And we're just sitting back and we're waiting for it to happen to us so we could fall into it. And then we get into it and... But I think number two is that it's not going to come by us waiting for everyone else to get their stuff together, right? I I teach all the time as a dad, you know, when we have all experiences at school or friends or these tough times or whatever. And and if you're a parent, I guarantee you've said it a million times. You've said said to your child, you said, um, you can't control what other people do. All you could do is control how you act and how you react. So what does it take for us to get that place? Um, if it's really contingent upon the other guy, let's have, what does it take to get to that place? What are some things that pop in your mind? If we have this ideal, ideal, ideal vision of what fa- this faith community, the way that Jesus taught was, what does it take for us to stop worrying about what, what does it take in ourselves to start moving towards that place? Anything come to mind? Forgiveness? Is that it? You're, whatever's in your brain is probably not wrong. What's that? Right. Embracing and owning it for yourself. So let's get real honest with each other. So why don't we just do that? Why don't we just, you know, what if we just did what we already knew we were supposed to do? Right? What keeps us from that place? Huh? So confront our... Confront ourselves with what? What are we confronting? Our what? Our crap. 
Yeah, and let's name some of that. Huh? Pride. Judgment. Huh? Fear. Jealousy. Self. I think every one of these could be under self. Really, you know, what Jesus is really calling us to is self-sacrifice in one capacity or another, in all capacities, but it's self-sacrifice is that, oh, I work so hard. But really it is, is taking what we really value and what holds us back and laying that aside, right? For us to discover what that is. This next part of this scripture, it's, it's labeled, if you look in your Bible, most of it will say the cost of following Jesus. And I think so far we're setting up a process of what that looks like. I, we want to get as practical as you can when you look into, in, into God's word. And I think this is, Jesus has really given us a very firm process uh, about how this thing works. And if you go into this, into, even back into Matthew 7, Jesus, first of all, talks about this conversion to him. This conversion to him where it's talking about asking and you'll find it. Seek and you'll find this thing that you've been looking for. And what have they been looking for since and hoping for since the days of the prophets in the Old Testament? Anyone know? I heard like 20 of you whisper something. (laughs) Specifically, I'm thinking of the Messiah, right? And then he goes on in, in Matthew 7 and he says, so first... You need to understand that I am the Messiah. I am the savior of of this world. I am the son of God. And then he talks about building on that foundation, that first thing, that conversion to Christ himself. And many of us understand that. And we think, yes, this is where we are. This is what we need to be. And Jesus started there. And then he went into Matthew 8 and talked about not just a conversion to him, but to his body. Do you understand that when the scripture that Jen tossed last week about the outcast and the outsider and the insider was a, was a look into the body of Christ as the church? Because we know then after his resurrection and the apostles went out, they brought all, all people to the table. That's what the cross did. It, it became for the Jew and the Gentile, for the insider and the outsider and the outcast. He, he's talking about the body of Christ being formed and, and what that looks like. And really what we were talking about last week was a reconciliation within the body of Christ itself. And I really believe with all my heart, this is why I haven't left the church, is because we're not supposed to. It's because... Christ has, through his teaching, has called us to him and then to his body. And when we try to just be called to him and do it on our own, it's not about him. It's about us. And we're not laying down our selfishness because we don't get it always the way we want to do it. And we don't, it doesn't get to be all about us and us getting, but it's about all of us collectively, which then points the glory to God instead of any one of us individually. And I really believe that the beauty of that and the reminder in that is that we are redefining what the body is as being two things. One is inclusive 
and two, not in isolation. You will always wither up and die in isolation. We are created to live in biblical community. Now, I do think that sometimes we overstate our forms of what that's supposed to look like, you know? Because church is always, um, the, the desire of how we do church must always speak the language of culture. So church has changed over the years. It's constantly flexing. It's supposed to because the gospel does not change. The form in which it is expressed can change, right? To speak the language of the people. That's what Jesus did with the incarnation. We've talked about that. God literally translated himself to us, the incarnation. So it's not necessarily the form of church, but the vision of church that we are together as a part of the body of Christ, right? Um, And so it's important that collectively, that we are collective, all right? I believe the process, Jesus started with conversion to himself, moved into literally like a conversion of the mind and heart to saying, if we don't do this together, then it's not being done the right way. Now we each have our individual mission and things going on, but not in isolation from the body of Christ. There's almost a conversion to that and finally going, no, it's just supposed to be this way. And then from there, I believe is where he's picking up in Matthew, Matthew eight, verse 18. So what is next? Verse 18, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, so there was a big crowd on the mountain. He came down, healed people, big crowd there. He gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Thanks for your answer, Jesus, right? No high five, no attaboy. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own. Interesting, interesting scripture. So Jesus saw the crowd around him and, and, and he had, the crowds were following him. They were all there, right? Um, for years, I've read this scripture, and I just thought Jesus was saying, man, when you get a crowd, run, you know? Whew, get out of here. How can we, you know, whittle this down a little bit? And he does. There's a lot of sifting through his teaching, you know? But this scripture says he, he saw the crowd around him. That word saw, that's, again, we keep seeing this word in Matthew. That word means to perceive, so it doesn't mean he saw with his eyes. It was like, oh, look at all these people. Where did they come from? It wasn't that. He perceived, it means to see with the mind. So Jesus perceived the crowd. What do you think he perceived in that moment? They had heard his teaching. They had seen his healing. What, when he looked at the crowd, what was he perceiving? What do you think that he perceived? Huh? Huh? <laughs> These people are clueless. Maybe. Maybe that he, they perceived that they wanted him, but he knew their heart. What else? Well, there's a bunch of people. So were they all thinking the same thing? 
Probably not. Some, what else? Huh? That he saw through what their real hopes were, that they were looking for an easy out, an easy answer. Right. I'm, what's the easiest way to get to point A from point B in religion? I'm never like that. <laughs> Ever. Jesus, just give me the list so I can check it off and feel good about myself, would you? And don't make it too hard. And I don't want to miss any football on Saturday. Ooh, maybe what he, he looked at them and thought, I, I know what you really want. Yeah, you're here because I'm going to give you what you want. And is that always a bad? That could be good or bad, right? Depending. What else do you think he perceived? That what? He saw that they were going to be disappointed. He knew what was coming. I I think all of these he saw, he perceived their need, right? No matter what it was, whether it was selfish or I think he perceived that. Um, okay, so if he perceived this hope, he perceived their need, he perceived all of their agendas, and then he ordered them to leave, to go across. What was going on? Why would he do that? Any thoughts on that? Huh? It was kind of a, maybe a crossroads for them. Are you guys going to do this? Say you want it. I see you perceive it. You're excited. You, you look at it. You see it. It looks shiny and, and beautiful. And maybe it was another, maybe it was a crossroads. You just say, hey, let's consider going here. I think one thing that's agreed upon it, most, most that I read from other theologians is that this wasn't, in, this, this wasn't a, I'm going to get away from these people. This was an invitation to a closer discipleship with him. It was ascending. It was unspecified. He said he looked, he, he told the whole crowd to go. I, I've always read that and I thought he was telling just the disciples. But he looked at the crowd and said, told them all to go. Let's go. All right, we're all here. We got this going on. You've experienced some stuff. Let's go. So he wasn't running from the crowd. His agenda was to bring them along. Or at least to see, I think it was a sifting some as well. And so I think we're beginning to see, first Jesus set up this conversion to him. Then he set up this idea of together, his body with a really big banquet table. And then he's saying, now I'm establishing this mission, which we know as his kingdom. And this kingdom now. But okay, now. You guys heard it. You saw me. Let's go. Whoa, 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 Now? Right now? How about next week? How about tomorrow? How about just one? Let me get some stuff in order. I got to get this out. I got I to gotta get this in order before I can get this. Um, Jesus, I didn't write this. I'll read it for somebody else wrote it. Jesus being acceptable and useful in one place was no objection against but a reason for his going to another. Thus he would try the multitudes. He would try the multitudes that were about him. So try is like the word trial. He would test whether their zeal would carry them to follow him and, and attend on him. When his preaching was removed to some distance, many would be glad of such helps if they could have them at next door. Who will not be at the pains to follow them to the other side? 
And thus Christ shook off those who were less zealous, and the perfect were made manifest. So this was a calling. It was an invitation to all to go to that next space. And it wasn't an invitation to have another banquet table right there. It was to go. It was a mission. It was recognized as his kingdom was a kingdom of action. So it was an invitation to all, though, and to perceive it as a part of their discipleship as well. All right? So when we're sent, we're on mission, we're told to do certain things. It's not just because Jesus wants to ruin your life and have, have, you know, make you work hard. He just, it's a part of it. It's a part of the sharpening. It's a part of the, so let's move on because at this rate, we'll be here all day. So earlier we were teaching and we looked at the outcast. We look at the uh, outsider. We looked at the insider. And there were two people who addressed Jesus after he said, let's go. Um, We saw that the outcasts made no empty promise. We saw that the outsider gave no excuse. Who spoke up in the scripture? You recall? It was the insiders. The insiders, two kinds of insiders, right? The teachers of the law, the teacher of the law, which in that moment was representing something bigger. It represented religion, but it also represented religion's wisdom, maybe even earthly wisdom, okay? But then also the other insider was the disciple. So it was the teacher of the law and the disciple who addressed. Um, Each with the mind to go, but each was something holding them back. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. I I read one um, commentary on this saying that the teacher of the law was ready. He was resolute and he was without reservation. Just let's do this, Jesus. But then Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Why did Jesus answer like that? Any thoughts? It almost sounds like he ignored him. Huh? So he knew his heart. I mean, there's a lot of different conversation about what, this, what is going on here, but I think it's pretty obvious. Jesus knew, yeah, in your mind, and, and he doesn't call out and, and say, even your heart wants to do this, but you're not gonna. He was just saying, in your mind, you're gonna do this. In your mind, you wanna do this. There's an idea of something you've been hungry for that you're like, yeah, Ooh, I'm really in love with the idea of that. But I think what Jesus was kind of calling him out on was, you're in love with the idea, but you don't really want to do it yourself. How, why this response, though? What is he saying? Why, why the Son of Man has no place to lay his head? What is he communicating there, you think? Huh? How hard it's going to be? Why would that be hard? Well, if you don't have a bed, I do. So he's saying it's not a destination, it's a spiritual thing. He's saying, hey, we're going to go to the other side, but that's not the end. This is, this is going to just keep going, right? This is, this is this challenge that, one, I see what you're doing, and two, you need to really count the cost because this, this is continuous. We're not just going home to hang out right now. This is something that I'm calling you into that's going to make a difference for a really long time. All right. 
Blah, skip that, skip this. All right. Um, the teacher of the law, the significance. His wisdom, I was thinking about the wisdom of the teacher of the law, and it brought me to James chapter 3. And, and, and I think this gives us instruction because it talks about when we, when we rest so much on our wisdom, um, how it, it is the opposite of um, what we need to be doing in surrendering our pride, surrendering bitterness. We've talked about forgiveness. We've talked about how withholding forgiveness can be a prison. We've talked about uh, surrendering selfish ambition. Uh, uh, James 3.13 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Uh, in this day, it was the teachers of the law. Let them show it by their life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it's earthly and spiritual. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. That's the body of Christ. I think that's a picture of what that is supposed to look like. So let's look at the second insider. The second insider is the disciple. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now, at first glance, this looks like a fair request, does it not? And if one thing I've learned as I've learned more about Jesus, he's not unreasonable and he's not a jerk. So as I look at this scripture, I go, wow, this doesn't sound like the Jesus I know when he says, let the dead bury their own. And so I think we need to jump back and go, okay, what do we know about this moment? Some, some people say that it, it was quite possible that his dad was actually sick. It just, we don't know. Some say maybe his dad was elder, but what we do know from the other responses in context is that Jesus knew he was making an excuse, right? And I think some reminders here is that we'll always have things that will seem more pressing, and take our personal attention away from following Christ. I think another lesson that I'm constantly remembering is: you, you do you ever make a lot? Do you make you ever make a lot of promises to God? Like God, I promise that's the last time I'm ever going to do that, ever, till till ever. We make promises with God a lot, and and you ever do that one? It's like okay, just one, this is the this is the last. The upcoming time is the last time. Like you really mean that, right? If you're going to, but I'm just going to do it one more time. You're really going to, as long as there is one last time, there will always be another one last time. That's my thought on that. But the big one is this, is this whole idea of kingdom now, us being called into this life now, 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 now. And I don't believe this is saying that that is more important than burying his father. I think that some some way he's saying the kingdom then will inform and take care of all of those things. Like there's a place in the kingdom for taking care of your father well, right? It's not one or the other. There's no compartmentalizing life anymore. That it's my finances kingdom, my future kingdom, my family kingdom, and that we're trusting God's plans for that. So many of us struggle with purpose in life. I think that's part of it. It's because we've separated what God's design is for us in our life from where he's placing us. Because we've taken the position of influence 
in, in people's lives and different things like that. And we've forgotten that he's given that to us. And we live it for ourselves and we place kingdom priorities on other things instead of bringing those back together. I think if anything, Jesus is just reminding us of this kingdom now mission that he had, he's come and now is the time. So we're called to consider our life, our failures, our selfishness, and to live for the kingdom in spite of them. There are times in life that seems so overwhelmingly impossible to me. Earthly, honesty, right? Like we know I could do that part, but this part is just, I just don't even know if it's worth trying because I just don't know that Jesus can overcome that. Sounds like a recipe for disaster. So I was honestly thinking, you know, God, I'm 42 years old. I've been in ministry for 21 years and I still got so far to go. What's wrong with me? You know, um, how does that translate into hope for each of us? What this is going on here. And so I kept reading Matthew eight and the very next scripture says, then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. And suddenly a furious storm came on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, just overwhelmed them. And Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him up saying, Lord, save us, we're gonna drown. We can't do this. I added that. And he replied, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? And he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. 